You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show, and indeed, Happy New Year, Happy New 2017. What better way to start this year, which I think is either the fifth or the sixth year of the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. I can't be bothered to look it up, and I'm terrible with dates, events, and things that have happened. But what better way to start the year than with a fabulous in-depth conversation with the incredible Welsh anecdotalist collaboration fan uh, is some fascinating stuff on word choice here and about how his persona differs when performing in Welsh or English he's just an absolutely brilliant comic and uh, I'm sure you're going to love hearing from him this is Ellis James I wanted to be in sitcoms I went to write sitcoms and someone in a pub said that they get a lot of their talent producers do from the stand-up circuit. Is that right? Yeah, so you should think about doing this. And he was working as a stand-up in London, but he's from Cardiff. But I'd never been to stand-up before, so I put myself down for an open mic night and then I went to the Cardiff Glee. And I remember the bill. It was Alistair Barry, Gav Webster, Gavin Webster, Kerry Marks and Steve Williams. Okay. So obviously, anyone who knows about the circuit knows that's a really good bill. And I'd never been to comedy before. And Alistair Barry walked on, he was comparing. And he instantly asked the person in the front row if, if they were together or what they did for a living. And I, I had my hands gripping onto the chair because I thought, he's, he's just improvising. <laughs> and then the guy said, yeah, I'm a teacher. And his wife said, yeah, I, I work in data entry. And he had stuff on that. I thought, oh my God, how did he know that, it, that I was going to be a teacher and that she was going to work in data? I thought... The man's a shaman. The man's incredible. And then he, he asked if there were any if there were any locals in, if anyone in from the valleys. He had stuff on that. I thought he he no, he's not even Welsh, but he's got this stuff. And then he asked a couple. I don't know. He he would have asked them how long they've been together or whatever. Just normal comparing stuff. And obviously, Alistair's a very good compare, and he had gear on it, and it just knocked my socks off. And I thought, why isn't he on television? Why aren't Parliament talking about this guy? That, he, should be in, is, he should be in the papers This is incredibly evocative And I think this will sum up I know there'll be people listening to this Who, like me, remember that phase of their own yeah. comedy awakening And there'll be people listening to this Who haven't had that yet And people who are having it Who had it at the gig they're driving yeah. home from tonight yeah. it's, <laughs> That's so important to remember That at one point it seemed magical uh, it, it, and impossible Absolutely extraordinary And then he did some prepared material And then he did some stuff about Welsh road signs And I just thought... Yeah, he, he's going to be Prime Minister or something. He can do it all. And then Gavin Webster came on and was amazing. I thought, why isn't this guy on telly? <laughs> yeah. this, this guy's also amazing. 
and then it was an interval, and then Alistair did more crowd work, and by this point, I'm now absolutely beside myself. And then he brought Steve Williams on, and he was local, and he had good stuff on Newport and Cardiff, and I thought, why is this guy not in the Western Mail? Why is he not on BBC Wales? Why is he not on Radio Wales? And then Carey came on, and was amazing. I thought, why is this guy not on telly? Why are these four guys not on telly? So then I did my open mic night, and it was in a it was in a pub, and it was dreadfully set up. Did you uh, travelling to that open mic night? Did you expect that when you got there, it would resemble the Glee? Comic? I didn't know what to expect actually, okay. because I'd never been to open. I'd never been to open mic music or anything. Okay, but I had this was an open mic comedy night. Though. It you was, yeah, yeah, yourself. okay, and right. it had just started, and it's it was an embryonic version of something that's still going in Cardiff actually. So I turned up, and I had about ten minutes, and I will we can come on to this in a bit, but. I thought, well, I was the funny person at school, I was the funny person at university, and I was temping in an office, and I was making people laugh, and I thought, so what makes them laugh? Which I think is probably the wrong way around. Okay. So I thought, well, how did I used to make the townies in school laugh, or the townies in my hometown, you know, how did I make them like me? And I thought, well, I'll, so I thought, it was probably quite crude, actually, looking back, it was quite, it wasn't really me, but I thought there's going to be more of them than the people who are interested in the stuff I'm interested in. So I had this set and I did five or six minutes and a bit of beginner's luck. And there's a certain charm to someone trying it for the first time, I think. So it, it, it was it was all right. It was fine. But the adrenaline was such, because I'd never done any performing, that I didn't sleep at all that night. At, at all. So I'd, I'd work the next day. So I went to work having not slept for 24 hours. Absolutely bouncing. And um, I remember thinking at about three in the morning... The gig went well. And I'd made an aside, which I didn't think was a joke. And a ho- there were a hockey team there who were having a drink after their game. Who obviously didn't realise it was open mic comedy on And they were ignoring it. And I made an aside and a girl laughed. I thought, I- even my asides were funny. <laughs> I've-, I've got it all. So, um, so it was about three in the morning. I remember thinking, right. Jeff Green, but I haven't seen him on telly for ages. I think he's moved to Australia. Joe Brand, uh, Eddie Azard, but he, he's sort of in films now. Lee Evans is in films. Deal and Skinner, well, they haven't been on telly for a little bit. Uh, Jack D, yeah, Jack D's still going. Roy Chibi Brown is a different, well, he's a different circuit. Bernard Manning, I think, has Les Dawson died? The four at the Glee, I thought, I'm like the 13th comic. <laughs> I thought, obviously there was the three, who, the, the three who were on tonight. I thought, that's 16. I thought, I'm the 17th comic. There has to be room for a 17th comic. I was thinking, if I'm as funny as I was tonight, I'll be, what is it, February? I'll be a millionaire by... No. Surely, surely if I'm the 17th comic, Britain can sustain, can probably sustain 20 comics. So then I went back a month later or something, and it, the second one went quite well, actually. And I, But there were more acts on the bill. I thought, all right, I'm the 21st comic. And then a, a month after that, I, I thought, okay, I'm the 25th comic, but I'm I'm still fairly confident at this stage. And then someone said, do you work for Mirth Control? And I said, no, What what's that? He went, oh, it's this guy called Jeff Whiting, and he, he runs about 120 gigs up and down the country. Look at his website. And suddenly I realized if he could service 120 gigs, there must be hundreds, if not thousands of comics. And then the maths went from being in my favor to being dead against me. And it was... Horrendous, and then I had a bad gig as well. I had my first really sort of really bad one, a real shock, and I thought, "I'll oh, this is it's it's never gonna it's never gonna work." That the kind of naivety that you're twenty five. That's then. the that's the embarrassing thing. But I couldn't think of more than about fifteen comics because I was like Alan Davis. Well, he does Jonathan Creek now. He doesn't really do stand up anymore, and I just couldn't think of. I thought Rob Ryan does Human Remains and Marion. I couldn't think of your. 
you're someone who like you've got a degree you've got an ma as well yeah, I yeah. Believe. um i'm not i'm not saying like how can you possibly have thought that from the point of view of you must be an idiot well it was I'm sort of what i'm what i slightly want to challenge you on is it seems to me that 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 representation of yourself as this naive idiot is something that i consider very ellis that's a thing yeah. you mine very effectively for comedy and how true to the actual you that was turning up for those gigs is that well that, that story is funny and heartwarming and i believe there's it's it's true but come on how true I, is that? it was pre-live at the apollo so there was almost no stand-up on television and the stand-up on telly there was it was probably seven or eight comics it was pre-mickey flanagan and rod gilbert and greg davis and all the comics live the apollo made famous it was i think it was before mock the week or certainly i don't think i watched mock the week and I think I I always loved sitcoms. That was a thing. So as a as a teenager, I grew up in um in a town that's very devoted to underage drinking. But I, I started puberty <laughs> quite late. Okay. So even though they'd serve anyone, they drew the line at me, and so I had to stay in. That was the thing. And so I watched a lot of comedy, but it was all sitcoms because BBC Two in the nineties was Red Dwarf yeah. and Alan Partridge and uh, Brass. I was on Channel Four, but they were you know the, it, 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 the fast show, and I really liked Shooting Stars. So stand up wasn't really a thing that inspired me as a as a teenager. It was if you talk to someone like Sean Walsh, he grew up watching yeah, Lee course. Evans and Dylan Moran, and I didn't. It was Coogan. It was all Coogan and, and the group Coogan was a part of who did the day-to-day primarily. And so I just didn't know very much about stand-up. And I thought it was just this really small niche thing. And it wasn't until I heard about Mirth Control that I realised that it was massive. And then suddenly I'd fallen in love with it. I jumped feet first into it. And then it was daunting but kind of exciting because I realised that it could be my job. And I really hated my job. And I thought, well, if this is just my job and I'm not on telly that's absolutely fine because it doesn't it means i'm not working in office what was the because you work in welsh as well you're one of something yeah. like seven welsh yeah comedians. i think Is that an accurate I, sort of I reckon there's probably there's probably 10 to 15 i think of those 10 to 15 how many tonight could do an hour in welsh well they've s will see have recently started giving hours to people and they've they've got this um showcase thing for welsh talent now so okay like noel we- james and Tidder Owen are probably the two that you will have heard of. Yes. Dan Thomas as well, you might have worked with Dan. Yes. And, you know, Noah's been doing gigs in Welsh probably for as long as he's been doing them in English. But th- it is it is a but tiny... Those, those five, scene. basically. Yeah. Right, and then got, like, who've got an hour or two that they could do it with. Yeah, well. yeah. And there's there's comedians like um, Stefan Allen, who you might have worked yes, with. Um, and he does it in Welsh as well. But it is it is a tiny... There's also a scene of people who do gigs only in Welsh who don't really perform in English. But again, if you add them all together, it's it's it's, it's a bit like Welsh rock was in the late 70s when there was nine bands. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it will so, grow, hopefully, into something so much bigger. So what was, in terms of, like, the your discovery, that taste for stand-up in, in the very early days for you, were you... Did you consider doing it in Welsh? Was Welsh your first language? It is my first language. It is. It's, it's Sorry, what? language. <laughs> but it's, it's language I would speak with my parents and my sisters, and okay. it was the language I went to school in. But... Growing up, I think I worked out the other day that the nearest comedy club would have been Jester's in Bristol, which is 120 miles away. Okay. So, so no clubs, but occasional sort of... I talked to Stefan a little bit about this. He sort of said there's there's an audience for Welsh comedy. There is now. I'm talking about when I was a teenager. Sure. I think he suggested, I'm not quite sure what time period he meant, whereby part of the audience for Welsh comedy are people who are happy to see the language be 
spoken in public who aren't necessarily comedy fans. Oh, there's there's absolutely that. And in the same way that I knew people who'd buy all Welsh language records to try and support the scene. Yes, there were okay. definitely. I did I did a, a an hour on television on the Welsh Channel Four S Four C last year. And I wrote it from scratch. It was completely different to any of the stuff I did in English. So I did a mini tour beforehand to, to just to work the stuff up. And it was 13 previews. So if you were working in English, you would do probably 30, 40 previews, Edinburgh. You'd tour it on your own and then you'd do two nights in London and they'd get the best stuff from both nights. Whereas I had 13 gigs and then the record, and I was going to get one stab at it. So it 13 was like, gigs to non-necessarily regular comedy club audiences. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I turned up in a miners' institute, and there were 10 people in a committee room, sat round a round table. But that's one of my 13 gigs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if that was an Edinburgh preview, I'd pull it, but it, it was too important. Okay. So is it is it fair to say that the, the description of you starting off and thinking, like pre-hearing about Mirth Control, there's only 20 comics in the world... That's a fairly accurate description of you as a Welsh language comic. Yes, that's true, yeah. I mean, the thing I noticed from doing the Welsh gigs was there hasn't been very much, if any, comedy on SOC. Or if it is, it's really geared towards old people. And there isn't anything modern of the kind of stuff that Noel does or I do or, or Tidder does. It's all really geared towards my grandparents' generation. And because I'd done stand-up for 11 years... And I'd done, I don't know, 3,000 gigs in Edinburgh shows and I'd been to Australia and all that sorts of stuff. I was of an English standard. Or, and I, I was, I, what I was doing was modern as well. And the other, the other really exciting thing with Welsh stand-up is that Noel does what he does in English in Welsh. So he sort of twists and plays with language. Yeah. And Tidir has got a very different on-stage persona to me. So what I do, it's slightly more observational than in English and it's much more nostalgic. But there's all these open goals because nobody's done it yet. Okay. So in the same way that Peter Kay had all of the 80s adverts to choose from, yeah. because no one had done that stuff prior to him, I've got all of Welsh culture. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually... Because Noel's never going to touch that stuff. He's just not, not, he no, he, he just, like yeah, he, he had, he had no, he's got nothing, well, there's no overlap. And I'm not familiar with Tidio's act, I've never, does no, he work in English as well? He works in English as well, okay. primarily in, in, in the north of England, I think. Okay. But, um, but he's done Edinburgh, but it's a very different thing, and Tidio's a bit older than I am as well, so he's coming from a different place, and just, um, it was amazing that no one had touched upon this stuff, and the thing that was exciting was, as a storytelling anecdotalist, the raw material I had in my, at my disposal for my first Edinburgh show was far better and more exciting than the raw material I had at, dispo- at my disposal for my fourth Edinburgh show. Yes. But by my fourth Edinburgh show, I was a considerably better comic. That is such an interesting observation. So, Absolutely. The comic I am now could really do something with the story about the, being a street performer absolutely. that I spent in, my, in 2010. Yeah, so absolutely. The, I, I experienced this thing that no one other than bilingual comics will, will ever be able to experience. I had basically a second attempt at my first show, but with 10 years of experience. God! Because pe- people find this difficult to believe. I spoke only Welsh at home, Welsh school, Welsh Sunday school. My grandparents couldn't speak very much English, and the county I grew up in was majority Welsh, so I, I used to hear it all the time. So it wasn't a weird hobby or a middle-class handshake. It was absolutely the language in the area where I grew up. And so there was all this stuff from my childhood that I couldn't discuss in English because no one would get the references even in English-speaking Wales. So there's stuff I'd like... Yeah, can you give us an example of a, well, like a, a reference? for instance, in my primary school, 
absolutely every kid in my primary school went to Sunday school and their parents almost ex- all went to chapel. Whereas in the English primary school across the road, it was far fewer people. And because Welsh speakers in the main, this has changed, I think, were f- tended to be more religious chapel goers. So it was a big part of the community. So we used to, we used to do, um, uh, what, what's the hell of a dr- treasure hunts in, in these big treasure hunts, right? See, the thing is, I've never done a treasure hunt in English, so I had to, I had to try and work out what treasure hunt, because <laughs> it's a hell of a dress song. That's how I think of it. Okay, yes. So I had all this stuff on treasure hunts, and it just it just wouldn't it wouldn't work in Swansea, I don't think, at an English gig, and it wouldn't work in Cardiff. But it was all these references, and you could see light bulbs going off in people's heads in the audience yes. as I was telling these jokes. So for my first Edinburgh show was in 2009. So if because a lot of it was about childhood, it was basically half my experience I could mine. So you then get a second go at the other half of your oh, experience, God. but with 10 years of experience. And so the show was written far more quickly. I think if I hadn't done Edinburgh, I wouldn't have been able to write it that quickly because I had the skills of writing to a deadline. So I used to record the gigs on two different dictaphones because if I lost the raw material of one, it was a catastrophe. Yes. And then I would drive to the next show, listening to it back again and again talking to myself and I would stop it and I would improvise. So I knew, I knew my previews very well because I had to be off notes as quickly as possible. Because what I've noticed is when you're an anecdotalist or a storyteller, most of my, not most of my laughs, but a lot of my laughs are from the performance, but you can't perform a routine you don't know. So you have to, so often I will ditch a story because I don't think it's funny because I don't know it. And so I'm not performing it properly. I'm just telling it. But once I'm performing it and I'm doing the act outs, and the voices and the characters and all that sort of stuff, then there's often something in it. I didn't have the time to play with. So I had to get to the learning it stage far more quickly than I would if I was writing an English show. And let's stay with that for a second, because that, I mean, you are one of the, I mean, you've heard this show, you've heard the show, a lot of these interviews. Almost everyone says I record them, but I never listen back. I definitely listened back, but uh, never more than once. Um, I think you must be the only guest who ever on the show who's I, listened back to one of their shows well, I f- more than once. I time. found my 2012 Edinburgh show, which was in English, obviously. Yeah. And I was going to send it to you. And the best version of that show was probably a preview I did in Cardiff with the Lloyd Lankford, but I couldn't find it. But I had this show that was recorded in Edinburgh. And I listened to the first two or three minutes. And then I couldn't listen to any more. And I thought, I think it's all right. But I don't know if it's a car crash. I can't send him that, and I can't okay. take that chat. Whereas with the Welsh thing, the record was on the seventeenth of September, and it had to be perfect by then. And so suddenly, all of your hang-ups and all of your neuroses go out the window. So in the same way that if I haven't done Edinburgh since twenty twelve, and I keep telling myself, "Oh, I can't write stand-up like I used to," but if my agent said, "You're doing Edinburgh," I've cleared your diary. I could write an Edinburgh show because I'm one of those people who needs a deadline. So I think, I think, to be honest, I think three comics together who know each other and are friends could probably write a three-star Edinburgh show in a week if you gave them a room and five previews. They could probably write a what? A three? An Edinburgh three. show, a three-star Edinburgh show in a week yeah. because I think almost everyone works better with a bit of adrenaline in them in the same way that I could never write good stuff in the house. All of my best jokes come within 20 minutes of performing or within 20 minutes of performing when I've got adrenaline in me, because all of my best decisions are informed by adrenaline. Because, like, um, how can I put this? I'm really into 60s psychedelia. 
<laughs> I love it. And the other day, I bought some quite obscure records, and I texted the one friend I know who really likes that stuff. But when you're in your house, surrounded by your stuff, you can kid that everyone else is interested in, you know, today at Parliament or... 60s psychedelia or 1980s FA Cup finals or whatever and then you get to the show the preview or the new material and you think oh my god that's <laughs> of course not oh, how many times have you arrived at a gig not. thinking gonna chuck in a bit of new tonight yeah. and just literally walked and in then, the room and thought of course not but then yeah. you see, you can see you can just tell from looking at people and so you know, I need that adrenaline to function. I think if you gave me five years to write an Edinburgh show, it would be rubbish. I hate that, you know, smell of the grease paint, roar of the crowd thing. But I do need an audience in front of me to be a stand-up. I've even tried sitting in the house and bantering with myself. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm in, Thank you so like much I'm for a, admitting that. Like Let's I'm in talk a, about like that. Like I'm in a pub or something. Because also I, I hate the myth that stand-ups are all these weird auteurs and we should do everything on our own. I, I love collaborating. I've been yep. in sketch groups and I've written in sketch groups and being in a room with another comic, one of the two comics, that's the funnest part of comedy, bouncing off each other and developing an idea together. I hate the idea that we're all like in our garrets wearing three coats because we can't afford to have the heating on at a typewriter. I think that's not... I mean, some people function like that, but I don't. I'm uh, quite a sociable person and I would yeah. like... I just like writing with other people. It's I mean, more the fun. difference between thinking of an idea on your own and wondering if it's funny and then doing that and immediately asking the person next to you who's a trusted friend who, whose opinion you respect and then they say, yeah, and they, they just say one little tweak on it and it sends you off down a completely yes, different completely, path. Why yeah. would you not want to work The like king that? of this is Henry Packer. If you take yes. anything to him, yes, okay. he will give you an angle that is from such a bizarre place and suddenly you've, it will be a great routine. And it's just one fresh angle and he is so good at that. Yes. But I saw his I saw his Edinburgh show this year. Did you see it? No, I didn't. His actually. most recent show was a, a kind of quite a daft, well, a very daft, a very packerish uh, kind of cartoon involving elements of cartoon and a story. One of the characters in it, and apologies, Henry, for butchering this, but one of the characters in it was, um, I think he was... Uh, What's it like a bone? Not, not a chiropractor. The other one, a podiatrist, a chiro. Um, no, 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 an osteopath. That's a, yeah, osteopath. <laughs> but I see where you, I see the word. Yeah. Um, it was an osteopath, and in order to preserve his perfect alignment, he only ever did things symmetrically. <laughs> and that is just like, oh, yeah. I, I could literally, you could put a gun to my head, I couldn't come up with that. Yeah, no, he's, um, I did the comedy zone with him in 2008, and I, I got to know him really well, and I used to watch his set every night, because uh -huh. it made me laugh so much. And spending time with him socially, he's the funniest person in a, and that was the, another thing I, I loved about comedy was, or getting into stand-up, was I suddenly met a lot of people more talented than I was. And that is, if you're not, if, if you don't have hang-ups about it, is exhilarating. And it was just fun. So this is Ellis. Now, listen, the first thing to say is that we spoke, and Ellis and I love a chat. <laughs> I love a chat. Ellis loves a chat. So there is at least another, I mean, I think it's 35, 40 minutes of extras available on this one. And you can download that from comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras simply by signing up to the mailing list. Ellis will be talking about how and why he swerved the usual unhappiness pitfalls in stand-up. And he'll be talking about the difficulty of finding jeopardy in his autobiographical stuff now that he is a 
settled dad and partner so uh, you know things that are close to a lot of our hearts I know um, but really really good stuff so if you're enjoying this as I'm sure you are there is more stuff available from Ellis comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras now before we get back to Ellis um, I'm on holiday at the moment but I'm getting back from holiday soon and then a raft of really exciting stuff is happening obviously the uh, 23rd of January at Soho Theatre sees Ellis James and John Robbins join me for a, a sort of triple pod smash special live show where I'll be interviewing them both at once um, specifically about their brilliant Radio X radio show and uh, and I'm fairly certain that's sold out there were five or four or five tickets left just before Christmas I'd be staggered if it hadn't sold out but you might get a return leg it to SohoTheatre.com where you can also find out the date but not yet the guests for the other Comedians Comedian Soho specials which are on uh, a couple of different months non-sequential but uh, all coming up in the first half of next year <laughs> I've done it the first time that's like the first time you write 16 instead of 17 I mean the first half of this year um, so more stuff from Ellis uh, more stuff in the extras come and see Ellis's show I'm just there's so much there's so much on at the moment listen I'm going to talk to you about the slightly emotional post-amble for such as the Waffle Bin rebranded I'm going to talk to you in, in the post-amble of this show about that one so I won't say anything about that then apart from thank you if you're anyone that responded to that as hundreds of you did I'm really really staggered by that thank you um, but here are I just wanted to read out if you'll indulge me some of your thoughts on an hour which was the Christmas gift uh, the much touted Christmas gift that I uploaded basically I uploaded my show uh, the last touring show not the one I'm touring in the next Oh God, like three weeks from now, uh, that tour begins. Not that show. And um, this is my Edinburgh show from 2015, which I toured in the spring of 2016. It's called An Hour. And I here are some things that people said. James said, uh, I want to talk about the current state of my knees after part of your show. I can't remember what it was now. It made me lose the power of my legs and I stumbled down quite heavily onto the floor laughing and whimpering. Lol. Now, you don't need to put lol there, James. <laughs> um, but thanks, man. Uh, I've physically made someone fall over. That was a good start. That was one of the first reactions I received to, to that show. Um, Paul says, I'm not one for immithering strangers. Immithering? I mean, I know mithering, but immithering? Is that a type? or am I just not as jenned up on uh, man- Mancunian language as I thought I was? He said, I thought I'd say thanks for the Christmas gift of your hour stand-up podcast. On the back of this, I'll be booking for your Manchester date in 2017. That's exactly how we want it done. Julia says, wanted to say thanks for the recent bonus episode of your stand-up show. This is sweet. Julia says, hard to know how to say how much we enjoyed it without sounding patronising. That, that is not a thing that troubles me. Patronise away. If you love the show, please tell me. Um, she says, we'd already discovered your other stand-up show online in the summer. Tickets have now been purchased to see you live in May. Oliver says it's effing hilarious. That's, I've, I've changed that bleep. I, uh, he said fucking, but I, I changed it, made it sound nicer. Um, Toby said, I loved every minute, made my day. Chris says, as a pod listener since show eight, can I say how much I enjoyed listening to the latest one, a really top-rate stand-up set. Andrew says, wank off the milk monkey, genius. And you will, of course, have to download the album itself to get into that um, excellent Spaniard Paco said your secret gift is probably the best thing anyone's ever given me. Now that's too much. <laughs> that is, that's too much, man. Um, come on, get get some better friends. That's my advice to Paco. David says, love the hour, thanks for putting it up. Adam says, I've listened to your po- podcast, but I haven't heard any of your stand-up. You're now my favourite comic. I mean, again, come on, get out more. I'm good, right? <laughs> but thank you, thank you, I appreciate it. And finally, a little thing from Andy. Thanks for the gift this morning. This is a different Andy, there was one earlier. Thanks for the gift this morning. As it's the season of goodwill, I would like to return the gesture. He gave me a little donation. He said, this is not for the podcast, but more for the stand-up show. Whilst I believe the podcast has a value, I just want to respect the amount of effort that you put into a one-hour show and help fund the day job too. Hey, Andy, good point. I'm not soliciting donations for the stand-up show. Some of you have very kindly said, oh, you know, this is... um 
this is what I would have paid for a ticket or what have you, and, and you've sent me little donations. I've written some sizable ones as well. Very much appreciate those. But if you would like to pay, if you missed the thing, if you're new, if you're listening five years from now and you you missed the thing, um, then on my website, there's, you can discover the, the, the album in a lot of different places. But if you buy it at Comedians Comedian dot com forward slash shop uh, then that links directly to my page on bandcamp which i think is comedians comedian.com bandcamp comedians comedian dot bandcamp.com but i'm not sure what the point is go via comedians comedian.com forward slash shop i get the best return i think it costs it's cheaper there for you and i make more money than if you buy it more expensively somewhere else do you understand more money i mean like three pound 82 per copy i think but you can pay more if you like so if you missed it uh then please feel free to to purchase a copy and if you received it and emailed me to say thank you or simply if you enjoyed it privately thank you so much i loved making that show i love performing it i've got so many happy memories of, of that edinburgh run and the tour and i did my first well first interview this year for the spring tour only a couple of days ago with uh, with becky golding in south bristol and i know she's on episode number 32 so hello becky for several years from now um she's catching up and i did an interview about the tour and she said oh that's a lot of dates it's something like 55 dates how you, you know, including uh, some australian dates as well and she said how are you feeling about it and i was like oh yeah yeah it's a lot of dates right <laughs> that's the bigger tour as i've ever done it's that's like doing slightly more than two edinburgh's in a row but thank god i love the show it's such a fun show to do and i have uh, so many exciting experiences of performing it of tweaking it as you go there's all of that stuff for me to find you know there's like the show it was at edinburgh uh, by the end of the, b- the beginning of the festival there's the show it was by the end of the festival and then there's the show it will be on day one of the tour and then there's the show it will be on and the end you know there's there's just so much to to explore and play around with that so that's all of that that's a thank you for uh, i've just been wanking off the milk monkey there many <laughs> many apologies and uh, apologies for apologizing with it via a reference to a uh, thing only some of you will understand but uh, i gave away tens tens of thirteens teens of thousands of uh, uh, of copies of that so uh Thanks for listening to it. I, I, that was a, felt like a really good thing to do. So, that's all of that. If you want any information about the tour, which I've banged on about enough, but it's comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. But if you are in any of the following places, or near any of the following places, you can come and see me. A very quick list. Joker's Comedy in Southend, Lighthouse in Poole, Gulbenkian Cafe in Canterbury, The Criterion in Leicester, The Hawth in Crawley, Comedia Brighton, Excess Malarkey in Manchester, Whelan's in Dublin, Exeter Bike Shed, The Widcombe Social Club in Bath, Harrogate Theatre, Birmingham Glee, Fruit in Hull, Henry Tudor House in Shrewsbury, Hen and Chick in Bristol, Stand in Glasgow, The Stand in Newcastle, Hilarity Bites in Darlington, The Leeds Wardrobe, The Melbourne International Comedy Festival, yep, I'm officially announcing that uh, the West End Centre in Aldershot the McHuncliffe Comedy Festival the Northampton Royal and Derngate the Junction in Cambridge the Lescar in Sheffield Chapter Arts in Cardiff Hemel Hempstead's Old Town Hall Warwick Arts Centre in Coventry and then culminating in a full week in the downstairs venue at the Soho Theatre in London at the very well end of uh, May beginning of June so that's a lot of stuff coming up if you're near any of those places comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour come and see me bring five friends got a lot of tickets to sell let's get back to Ellie. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So let's just stay with this idea of um, your concern about relevancy. Because uh, you sent me that uh, link, that very, very funny story, which I don't think I'd heard before, of uh, paintballing on a come down. Right. That yeah. bit that you did on uh, Dave's one night stand. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about that, and you said that you didn't think that you could write anything like that again, or you or you were concerned that you couldn't because it was to do with, it wasn't the comedy of a dad. No. It was a if, young person who could go out and get trolleyed. And- if you're a, an anecdotalist or a storyteller, you live and die by your reveals and also by the jeopardy in your story. And the more settled your life becomes, the less jeopardy you have. So in, I mean, John Robbins, who I do the radio show with, is the most punctual human being I have ever met. So when he was late for one show, we, we, thought, he, we thought he was dead. So we, yeah. we, we called his girlfriend because we thought he must have died. And you started this, the show as he we was coming in sh- and you were yeah, texting yeah, him. Yeah. Time. It was, that was a Whereas if I was late, it's Ellis is late. No one thinks that I've crashed a car. People think I've got up late. Okay. And in my 20s, I was single for most of my 20s, so I used to go out a lot and I used to get drunk and I was a complete idiot and I was constantly late. And when you're living your life by those margins, things go wrong and things going wrong, that that is funny. And being single is funny. So this, most people want to see it, obviously, but uh, as a precy of that paintballing routine. Which is available on YouTube if anyone wants to have I, 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 I went out and I took ecstasy uh, and I had forgotten that I was going paintballing the next day. So then my friends woke me up at 9am and said, we're going paintballing now. And I went and it was absolutely horrendous. It was the worst day of my life. Because obviously I was on a come down and all that sort of stuff. And it was a fairly easy routine to write because you've got all the jeopardies there. Yeah. And then because it was, I was there all day and I was there with groups of people I didn't know and the instructors are a certain type of person. If you go paintballing, you'll know. That allowed me to do different characters and it allowed me to go off on tangents, allowed me to do observational stuff about the people I was with and the, the instructors and how absurd paintballing is when you live a, a sort of a cosseted Western 21st century existence. How ridiculous the idea of simulating war with paint. So it allowed me to do all these things, but then you get to a certain age and you get tired of people rolling their eyes at you because you fucked up. So you get if, tired of audiences, or do you no, mean I, in no, your I'm real about, life? In my real you life, pull yourself I, got, I got tired of people going, "Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, Alice is late." And rolling their eyes. Well, of course, he hasn't done that. Of course, he hasn't filled that form in. Of course, he hasn't got travel insurance for the gigs he's doing in New Zealand. Of course, he hasn't. And then you get to a stage where you think, "Well, actually." <laughs> I have. So but then when you sort your you life get into out, fewer scrapes because you've sorted you your life out. You get into fewer scrapes. This, this tallies really, I think this is very interesting because I said on the podcast a while ago about a really useful uh, writing, not an exercise, but like a little sideline thing to do. When you're writing, Pete Dobbing put me onto this. You keep a tally chart at the back of the book in which you're writing. Every time you think to yourself one of your negative things that's going to stop you writing, like, oh, I've used up all my stories, yeah. you think... 
I'm congratulating myself on that. I've another another tick, and you literally have a column marked. Right. You know, I've used up all my stories. Or you have a column marked, I just can't do this. Or a column yeah. marked, I can't concentrate on this today. And so rather than ruminate on that negative thing, you just put a thing in the tally and you get on with it. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll let you interrupt me in a minute. Otherwise, I'm going to forget my thread. Because one of the things that I think most frequently, one of the biggest columns for me, one of the most frequently filled ones, is... You're too handsome. <laughs> well, never bothers me. One of, the, uh, <laughs> one of the columns for me is I'm a problem solver. I don't get into scrapes. When things go wrong, when <laughs> right, things okay. go wrong, I fix them. That's who I've always yeah. been. If my car gets a flat tire, I enjoy setting yeah. the timer. I time myself as to how quickly I can solve the problem and get back on the right. road. Okay. So that is the, I, I think to myself, or I used to, that is the opposite of a standard comedian. This is why I'm no good. So it's fascinating to hear someone almost corroborate that idea. Well, don't get me wrong. It's a much more pleasant life. It is a far less exciting life. The enemy of material. I, I know where my passport is. And that is, telling 25, it was, it could have been absolutely anywhere when I was 25. I know where my driving license is. Um, I could tell you in one email um, who provides my home insurance. But I didn't have home insurance. I didn't have any of that stuff. I just yeah. didn't, it didn't seem relevant or... I just didn't know anything. But when you're bouncing from one crisis to another, which was what my 20s was, it is easy to write material then. So what I would do is I... The, the, Welsh, the Welsh language show... The interesting thing with being bilingual is that I have a slightly different personality in Welsh to what I do in English. And my onstage persona was different. So the... You have a different personality? Yes, I'd Data, say so. Okay. It, you've got to explain further about um, what you mean by that. For instance... There's this thing called the Estevvod. Is one of you really angry? (laughs) (laughs) The Estevvod is this big cultural festival where people recite poems and and they sing songs and and it's quite old-fashioned. It's the biggest youth cultural festival in Europe and we were forced to do it at school and I hated every second of it. Um, My two sisters loved it and performed for years and we used to trips around the country watching them. Um, And they would would sing in choirs and things or, or mini choirs of seven or eight and they did it because they were with their friends. And I now, as a 36-year-old, understand that they were just hanging out with their mates and getting the adrenaline performing, and it was just a bit of fun. Whereas I was this NME reading, melody maker reading, quite sneering teenager. I just thought it was uber lame. So I was always taking the piss out of that stuff. And then because I think I'd done a lot of stand-up in English in England, all of the marketing around the Welsh shows that He's a popular British comic in English, and now he's coming back and doing a show in his first language. And it allowed me to be quite sneering and damning about stuff and say, this is rubbish, in a way that I probably wouldn't in English. And I was I was probably higher status, I would say, in Welsh than I was in English. Okay. Because I'd, I'd moved away and I was taking the piss. Within that culture, even Within if you physically culture. hadn't moved that far, you'd moved away and come back. Yeah. So you were here to tell and everybody. Done, and, and also a lot of the first five minutes of that show were the gigs. There's no real Welsh language circuit yet. There will be. But so the gigs, I did one gig in a, in a shop. And um, <laughs> there was no microning. And I turned up and the manager of the shop was like, oh, I'm looking forward to having you. And I said, great. I said, so where's the stage? And he went, uh, no stage. And I said, um, I said, <laughs> where's the mic? 
And he went, uh, well, there's no mic, but I thought you could uh, just lean against the tail. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you had, I had to do the gig. And I said, I said, um, how many are we expecting? And he said, an absolute definite dozen. We are definitely getting a dozen, possibly 13. <laughs> so, but they were all, apart, bar a, f- a couple of examples, Aberystwyth Arts Centre, that, that was a good one. And uh, the one in Carmarthen went well. And the one in Swansea, went, but barring a few examples, it was a real hodgepodge. It was probably like doing stand-up about 30 years ago when it was a, a nascent thing and there was only about 20 comics. Okay. But as someone who worked in Australia and New Zealand and England and all yes. sorts, it allowed me to go, what is, come on, Wales. And Welsh people will have the piss taken out of them by a Welsh person. Yes. So I was okay. higher, I was, it, it allowed me to be higher status. So going back to that that story, the paintballing story. Yeah, you mentioned that as a as a storyteller, you live or die by your reveals On and the by your jeopardy. Yeah. Now you, I get what you mean from the jeopardy. What are, what are, because people can you know if super nerdy fans of this show, which is all of you, can uh, can go and watch that uh, on YouTube on Dave's One Night Stand. And uh, what for you are the reveals? In that piece of uh, material. Well, spoiler alert, um, I turned up without any money because I was awake at, you know, I was asleep at 8.58 and then I was in the car by 9.01. So I didn't, I only had a t-shirt on and it was raining and I only had a tra- pair of tracksuit bottoms on and I didn't have any money and you've got to pay for your bullets. So I couldn't, I, I couldn't even pay for it. And that's true, so you said, have, because yeah, my mates I, are bastards. Yeah, I, yeah, so I didn't do. have, I didn't have any bullets, so I couldn't, I couldn't so even fire So they made you go back, paintballing and no was, one would lend you, that yeah, was Yeah, it was true. like, it was like being a kid again. <laughs> so I couldn't shoot it anywhere. And this doesn't, this doesn't make it into the, into the, sh- into the routine. But um, we were, we were told at the start, you're not allowed to shoot someone from point blank range, because that's potentially dangerous. So if, if you go up behind someone, you say um, surrender, then you say surrender, and then you're out of the game. You walk to the dead zone. The language of it is absurd. <laughs> the yeah. Dead zone, cordoned off, bit next to some bar. And I was, I was hidden behind a barrel in the rain, clutching a redundant gun. And then a bloke came up to me on a stag do, and he went surrender. And I hadn't been listening during the initial sort of lecture, so I just said, I don't know what you want from me, which allowed him to then shoot me in the back <laughs> from about. <laughs> And just everything kept going wrong, and my mask steamed up because it was raining, and I was hungover, so I was breathing okay. heavily. So I was also blind. So what work did you need to do? I mean, is is that story maybe a bad example of the craft of storytelling because it was um, all there a for you? better one, actually, is when my friends were about 18, they decided to go carol singing to make some money. I'm far more familiar with this bit. Yeah. I've seen you do this many times. So they, yes. they decided to go carol singing to make some money, but it was way too early. It was September or something. And they only knew one line of one carol, which was Silent Night, Silent Night, Holy Night. And then, so they made nothing. And they, they, they were trying to buy money for weed. And then they, they turned up at a pensioner's house and he invited them in under the premise that he could make requests because he loved carols being sung. So they thought, brilliant, we might get some money out of this. So he requested Last Christmas by Wham. They sang it, but the guy whose idea it was knew far more of the song than his mates because his stepsister's older than him, and she really liked Wham. So suddenly then he started singing it solo, verses that no no one's heard. (laughs) But it looked pre-planned, and then they came back into the chorus. And when I got told that story, it was absolutely the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I tried to make it work for ages on stage, and I couldn't. 
And then I realised I had to be involved. You had involved. to be there. It's a story about you failing, I had to it? be involved. So I wasn't the main protagonist, but I was the other person who didn't know the words, and then that allowed me to observe what's going on. Okay. And when you're writing a, a story for stand-up, you want to get the ball rolling, and then once once they're really laughing, I don't mind waiting a minute to do some setup if it's a nice gig. If I think so, I, I wouldn't do that one story at a weekend club probably because the setup's slightly too long. So I don't think they'll go with me at a weekend club. Okay. Unless, although I will be trying to work out because it's my favourite bit, I'll be trying to work that out during the first fifteen minutes of the set. So if I think they'll go with it. I'll check so it in at the end. gauging the elasticity almost. Yeah, for a yeah. for, for quarter of an hour, especially if I'm opening or in the middle, I'll, I'll think, I might be able to get away with this. So then you want, you want to get the momentum rolling. It's a bit like um, pushing a snowball down a hill. Once they're really laughing, then you can, you really want to sort of turn the screw and make it as funny as possible. And the thing with that Wham story was, what was very funny was the the pensioner had resp- respiratory problems. <laughs> so if I could, doing a <laughs> impression of him enjoying it would always get a laugh. So if there was yes, ever a okay, lull, yes. I, could, I could chuck that in again. And I can't do straight up observational comedy like... Josh can in English. I can in Welsh. I don't know why that is. So, but I can drop it into a story. So I've got a story about weeing in a swimming pool when I was two or three, and halfway through the story, when when the jeopardy's at its height, because my father's pulled me out of the swimming pool and people are screaming and there's piss everywhere and life the lifeguard's shouting at me, that then allows me to do observational material about swimming pools. But because I've built up a head of steam by this point, I am able to almost come out of it and be exasperated and it's like almost like a checklist of things that were adding to the situation that are, that are just general observations on what a swimming pool is like but if i went on stage and said swimming pools why is there a vendor it, that i can't seem to get away with and it's to do with comic voice i think i don't know why that is but i've never been able to work that go, out. go on that's it's to do with comic voice which is which is that what your I mean, let's look at some possibilities for that, because that's really... Whenever anyone says, I can't work it out, I'm like, let's try and get it. So I did an hour of greatest hits, if you will. My favourite... I love it. (laughs) My favourite routines at the McHuntleth Comedy Festival. Yes. So an hour, it was probably probably eight eight stories, maybe. Uh And then... And I noticed that the funniest ones there will be jeopardy that, that has come from real life. I'm unable to make that up for some reason. And that is something I wish I was able to, because then I could write it like it was a novel. Yeah. But for people to buy it, and if people don't buy it, if people don't think it's true, they absolutely won't laugh. And I've never been able to sit down and come up with a reveal no. No. that makes sense. So I need, to, I, need, I need the jeopardy to come from real life. And then once the reveal is funny enough, I can work back and then tell the story. And then once I've got the framework of it, I can... Checking observations, which might be things I've just thought for ages, or the things I realise as I'm writing the bit. So, I mean. do you think it's to do with the strength of the observations that you can't just deliver them? It might, cold? it might, it might well be that. Or is it that it probably you're- is actually because I think a really good observation, like James A. Caster, there are no more observations to be made about mariachi music yeah. because James has made every single one. Yeah. And if you take any of the things James has done observation material on, 
he's rinsed it. And I often, I can't rinse a topic like James can, but if they're already laughing at the absurd situation I'm in, my observation about, I don't know, those little pools that stop you getting verrucas will be an, a, a topper onto what is already happening. And then that will give me the momentum to make it a funny enough bit to be performable. And so how do you mean, how does comic voice play into that? Do, do you Do you feel that in English you have a less I just a, don't I, kind of I don't think I have or a defined I don't think voice. I have angles that are as fresh as James's or any of the great observationists and thus I think people for instance right I did a lot of circuit work in about 2011 2012 I did a lot of weekend clubs so I did a lot of the glee and up the creek and the comedian all that sort of stuff and I got John Godillo to direct my 2012 show and I'd lived with him in 2008 and he'd been to see the 2009 one but I hadn't seen him for a bit and doing the comedian up the creek and all of those gigs what that had done was it had smartened me up so I, I was going on at Edinburgh wearing the clothes I would wear to do the comedian on a Saturday night. And John came to the first one and he said, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you look like you're going on a date. Have <laughs> okay. you shaved? I was like, yeah. He's like, what is wrong? No, 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 no. You've got, you've got your hair. What? No, what, what? He said, that is not what people want from me at all. He said, the Ellis I knew when I lived with you in Edinburgh a few years ago, and the first, and the you know, when, when we did lots of gigs together, was this scruffy, ridiculous person who can't quite believe he's got to the gig on time. But now you look like you're about to take someone to Zizi's for a, for a meal. <laughs> what is what is this? And I, I, it hadn't occurred to me. And I think one of the challenges for writing material in the future is that because I've settled down a bit and I'm I know where my passport is. I don't really know what I should look like. <laughs> yes, that's interesting to have come I don't across know what that clothes a, I should wear anymore. a touchstone for who am I? Because yeah. the other thing is, like any young parent, and also because I'm quite laid back, my default settings, it will be fine. And occasionally I mess up because I think it will be fine when it doesn't. And actually she needs to eat and she can't stand there because it's dangerous or whatever. But it's difficult to do that stuff because if... An audience think you're putting your kid in danger. They don't laugh. They think about calling social services. And so I wrote after um, after she was born. I wrote probably thirty minutes of stuff. Some stuff I thought was really funny. But if it was, if it, if the jeopardy was on the baby rather than myself, then it's not funny at all. So one yes, of my one yes, of my, of one of my um, great regrets is that I was hungover at the birth of my daughter. By mistake, I went out and got drunk by mistake because Izzy tapped her stomach and said, this baby isn't coming anytime soon. Please go out with your friends. And I only had a couple, but, you know, that's a regret of mine. I tried that story at A New Material Night and especially the the, the women I found thought, oh, that's great. So she's nine months pregnant yeah, sure. and you're in the pub. And even though it was very funny for my friends, I don't think it's a performable Routine. I got because happy slapped in a shop what? by some by fourteen year old girls, one of whom was in a wheelchair, and I cannot make that funny on stage because I don't know. I, I've never been able to work that out because I got mugged in Cardiff and I got beaten up, but that I can make funny. So is it to do with who the victim is? So if you got happy slapped in a shop by some girls, does the wheelchair make it not funny? Yeah, because I remember I. I don't lose my temper very often, but I did lose my temper and I chased them. But as I was chasing them, I was thinking, what am I going to do if I catch them? They're five 15-year-old girls. I've obviously done it for a day. What is, what do I have available to me? Yes. Because I can't, I'm not going to start shouting like a teacher. Like a teacher. No, and I tell you what, if you were 28, 
that might be funnier because you'd have fewer options because you'd be a boy yeah, wanting to it be was, a man. It was if ridiculous. If you're in your 30s, in your late and, 30s maybe. But then. I was I was chasing them and I hadn't let go of my shopping because I, I'd done a lot of shopping and I thought if I, if I lose the bags... <laughs> <laughs> if I lose my trolley This is going to be a nightmare I'll have to go around again And also it was quite half-hearted Because I'd realised quite quickly I, I didn't have many options available to me And then a girl One of the friends caught me up On a wheelchair and said What are you going to do if you catch them And I was like I haven't got to that part yet <laughs> Okay well that, that's interesting That voice that you did just then Yeah That moment That is a, that is a very Ellis thing Yeah <laughs> And it's in a lot of your A lot of your stand-up I think that is like a A small neurotic Or not neurotic but a put upon man yeah angry but because i'm physically small as well so it's difficult for me to show my temper without looking absurd so when i do i do that voice because if i was you know six foot five then me losing my temper is a completely different ball game but i am five foot six so when i lose my temper it's sort of hilarious unless unless i've got a weapon just to get really specific on the writing something that i noticed um from one of your bits i saw on youtube in the last week or so you use the word seldom on stage and it suddenly (laughs) struck me that you're the only comedian i've ever heard (laughs) or could ever imagine using the word seldom on stage and i just wanted to talk about your use of language right and earlier on you described something as doggerel (laughs) i thought yeah i can imagine you saying doggerel during a routine um, as well talk to me a bit about one of my favorite things to do this was a lot of fun in welsh as well is i will occasionally write out a routine longhand and then I'll put all the words into a thesaurus. Oh, here's then, the good stuff. And the thing with a thesaurus, <laughs> the thing with a thesaurus, <laughs> it is an extraordinary tool. Because the reason words like seldom and doggerel are funny is that you know what they mean, but you'd never use them. Yes, they're almost they, an observational they, joke in themselves. Yeah, they, they are, they're not quite on the tip of your tongue. They're, on, they're sort of halfway back. I'm fascinated <laughs> to hear that that much thought went into your use of the word seldom. Well, <laughs> I think... I think with seldom it was it was I was hanging out with a, a slightly older man <laughs> from Carmarthen who used to use it and I just thought it was amazing. Stuart Lee's got this thing about Richard Herring. I think isn't Richard Herring's dad a vicar? Yes, oh no, uh, teacher who's a headmaster. Um, yeah, but Richard will use words that are quite biblical sometimes. Yes, and it's just like like humble is quite a funny word. <laughs> and the reason I took my friend on tour with me is that he's got this wonderful. He had a very very chapel religious upbringing, and his parents read the Bible a lot. And he's got this very biblical Welsh language turn of phrase, which is at the back of everyone's tongue. If we're going to continue this analogy, because everyone went to Sunday school, but no one goes to chapel anymore. So you think, oh, you might not have heard that word since you were ten or eleven, but you'll know what it means, and yes. then that's just funny. Yes, and with the thing with the thesaurus is that you can put the word extra in and then the first one will be additional and then there'll be another seven or eight. And the fifth one, the seventh and the eighth ones will be words you've never heard before. But the fifth one would be like, oh, yes, <laughs> then I'll use that word. But if I'm doing a weekend gig and I think that they're too drunk. You'll shift I three will, gears back I will, up the thesaurus. Yeah, I'll go back to the front of the tongue. <laughs> And I can I can do that because in the same way that you modify your speech depending on who you're talking to, I think we talk differently on the radio show to how I would if I was doing a radio show on a different station because I think Radio X listeners will buy into it. And certainly the in at the live gigs they did. And John absolutely doesn't hold back. And I think the exciting thing with the tour was it allowed us to use those words because they're not, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about 
Chaucer or Shakespeare. They're, they're, they're <laughs> okay, 21st yeah. century words. They're just not the, your first port of call. It's funny you should mention Chaucer. Uh, John, in the interview on this podcast with him, used the phrase to quite someone yeah. <laughs> and he said in the Chaucerian sense and I thought well first appearance in uh, yeah. nearly 200 episodes of um, Chaucerian yeah I th- I just think a thesaurus is because also it, it can work as a, a as a punchline almost like I'm very bad at writing actual joke jokes and I used to really really beat myself up about this so I would listen to Tim Vine and Milton Jones and Gary Delaney and Jimmy yes. Carr and I would try and work out the mechanics of a one-liner. But if it doesn't come naturally, if you hang out with Noel James, he just thinks in jokes. Yes. But I don't. Yes, I, yeah, I could just, I worked with him recently and you'll, I just said something to him. I can't remember what he came back with, but I said something to him like, on oh, my brother-in-law's in the audience. And he just did a little one-line yeah. riff on it. Like every, yeah. every sentence, but every conversation with him. That's not... The, the kind of brain you've been given. Sure. My brain, I work in characters and voices and stories. Like, I, like Robbins loves reading poetry, but I loved reading novels. Like, I never read poetry, but he, he will do that to relax, and he'll read T.S. Eliot to unwind, whereas I would read a novel. And it's just a diff- slightly different way of... The, the, your, your, your brain is wired. If you don't think in jokes, but then you try and teach yourself how to do it, the jokes you write are absolutely rubbish. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, and then I, I, think, thought, I think every non-one-liner comic has tried yeah, to find out whether they're a one-liner But then comic. I thought, what's the point? Because Billy Connolly never told jokes. He's just a funny guy in the pub. And I thought, well, if that's, if that's me, then that's me. I just need to get punchy. You can always make an anecdote or a story punchier. And I agree. What, were you, what tools would you use in the first instance if you were like I've got a bit of a like have you got a thing at the moment say just the to bring thing it right I, into the thing now with a story what, are you, what are you toying with at the people moment people don't laugh if they're confused and people are confused if they don't quite understand the setup so your setup has to be very very clear the situation that you are in or your friends are in or your daughter is in has to be made very explicit early on so that everyone is on board and once they're on board they will usually go with it but you need to make that process as short as possible and if possible, funny. So when I used to do late in life, because which is a, a late night gig, is it? Very. It's the latest it's like night. Starts late night. at one a.m. or yeah, something? and it ends yeah. at four. So the last end I did, I was closing late at life occasionally. So you're on stage at half past three, and they are hammered. Yeah. So to try and keep their attention, it is too late. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I've done that gig many so times. So I used to like. I used to really love it. Spunk because Spunk starts at eleven and they are as drunk, but it is four hours earlier yes. in the evening. So what I used to do with Late in Live, and I used to do this when I used to do jonglers and highlights as well, was I don't mind doing a bit of crowd work. I would often not invite heckles, but I would invite stuff to happen in the audience because I'm fairly confident I could deal with it. Because if you're as drunk as they are at half past three, then you've, you, we've got problems. Yeah. Uh, but if you can't deal with someone who's that drunk, then you've got problems as a uh-huh. comic. So I remember I, the last Late in Live I did, there was a South African bloke who'd been the centre of attention and he'd been a very irritating heckler and everyone had had to deal with him. So I think I pretended to invite him on stage and I got everyone to cheer whether she'd be on stage or not. So that's waking everyone up. And then I invited him on stage and I told him that he couldn't come on stage and that was funny or whatever. It was quite cheap actually, but still I was sort of playing with him and toying with him because he wanted to be played with, but I was confident I could make it funny. And if I was getting laughs, that would get everyone's attention. So then after about 10 minutes, I was doing 15 minutes. I said, right, you've, 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 you've got to sit down now. And I think I, made everyone give him a round of applause. And because it had worked, I then said, if I tell you a five-minute story, will you listen? And then they all cheered. And then it's like resetting the gig to nine o'clock. So when I used to do jonglers and highlights and stuff, 
because they can be quite rowdy, I used to try and engineer a a, a mini happening. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I would, then I would sort smart. of ask, is rubber dope or something? It is is what some comics call it. And then I would ask for a bit of leeway to tell a, a That's longer. That's a boxing bit. expression, and I don't know what it means. Uh, uh, Muhammad Ali in was it the Rumble in the Jungle? He was leaning against the ropes, knowing he could cope with a lot of okay. um, blows to the body. Let them wear themselves out. Let George Foreman wear himself out. Okay. And then he won in the 10th or something because he had plenty of gas left in the tank. But the problem with that is it's very tiring and (laughs) high risk. (laughs) So sometimes, and I will freely admit this, it went very, very wrong. And sometimes I would always just try and do my set, but it was a thing I I knew I could do at the rowdier gigs if I had to. But I never really enjoyed doing it because it's high risk. And I did used to think I would sort of just prefer it if you listened because why are we doing this? You've all, you've all you've all paid, but you've got to play the gig you're faced with. What are you doing now in terms of stand up? Are you what material were you doing on tour with John? Well, with were the, you doing tried the and tour with stuff? John was all stuff that was based on the show. Okay, so I would go out and I would do two minutes of crowd work, and then I, John would have his very big introduction. Yes. And then well, he, I saw it his latitude. Big, I saw his the, big I saw walk on. And then it was stuff from the show and things that fans from the show would recognise. Um, when I do stand-up now, if I do the circuit, I do about 10 minutes of quite new stuff about the baby because that's me at the moment. Yeah. And then I will end on 10 minutes of old, old stuff. Okay. Because you've, you've got to give them their 20 minutes worth. <laughs> I've got about 50 minutes of stuff that if I had Edinburgh as a deadline, could be worked up to be a, a funny enough hour. But because I only really... I, I do a lot of other... I, I, I do acting and, and other things mm. now on the radio show, and it's bubbling under, but it's I, I haven't really got the time to devote to going to New Material Night. So I looked at my diary from the last Edinburgh show, and May, June, July was just previews and New Material yeah. Nights. But I'm not in, I'm not in the position to, to do that. It's taken a sort of a slight backseat stand-up at the moment. I would love to write a stand-up show with someone else. Oh. But I don't think you're allowed to. By whom? The 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 the, 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 the comedy. No, no. <laughs> and I think there it's is an, no comedy. It's you're an, allowed it's to do whatever you want. You, you, because might, you might find that you're not eligible for an award. Yeah. Other a, than a that, writer, there is no award. A writer who does a lot of um, monologue gags for TV shows and gag passes on other people's scripts. He told me once that he would love to take a young act who's good at crowd work and... Give them some gear. And basically create create a comedian, him and a couple of other writers. So so now we can play the game of... It's already happened. Which comic was it? <laughs> but, you know, uh, take someone who's who's got a good 20 and people are talking about, you know, agents are sniffing around and then basically create a comic. I wrote um, on Stand Up for the Week and I've written with a... I was in a s- sketch group called Super Clump with eight other comics. I remember. It was ludicrous. And it was Nat, such... Crane, Nat Lertzema, Tom Wozniak. Crane, Wozniak, Harry Packer, Ben Partridge, yes. Sean Harris, Josh Widdicombe, me... Um, Henry Widdicombe how many is that? Is that I mean many? that's already more than nine I think <laughs> um, and it was such fun it yeah. was such fun and people used to say well you only have to write five minutes each but actually it wasn't that your stuff had to get past eight people yes that's so but hanging out with other comics and make especially if your peer group and your friends and who make you laugh is the, is the most fun thing and I just would 
like John Gordillo directed my show in 2012, but if Gordillo directs you, he won't give you jokes or toppers. No. He will talk about structure and he'll dismantle your personality. Yes, he'll he'll put, put you back to... <laughs> put you back but to why, again. Why are you Why are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just think it's it's just a healthy, fun thing to do. And I, 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 I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I also think that when you're not devoted to Edinburgh, a lot of stuff happens that you could get stuff out of that, and you forget and you pass it by. So I occasionally look at old Facebook statuses and think, oh, yeah. The one thing I would love to do, but I haven't got the time, is John and I have done, I don't know, 140 podcasts or something. And there is definitely loads of material there. Yes. stuff Because we talk about our week. So that's, you know, every week from 2014, February, whatever it was, to present until we get sacked. It's a treasure trove of the last three years of my experience. I just haven't got the patience to sit through 140 of my own podcasts. Well, I mean, feel free to tell me to cut this, but <laughs> you know, I, I know where, I, where you can find roughly a thousand people who would be happy to do yeah, that for you. Um, <laughs> there's nothing like a deadline. And for 2012, I wrote, I had nothing in April. And then by the end of July, it was probably the best show I'd done because of fear, because it was the highest profile I'd been in Edinburgh. So I was expecting you know, press and all that sort of yes. stuff. And fear is a good, uh, that's like a deadline in itself, isn't it? That's a deadline. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said about that stress, actually. I think, I know that it's, you know, having a bad Edinburgh is, is a horrendous experience. But if Stuart Lee said in, in The Observer or something, or The Guardian, that stand-ups who don't do it ossify and stagnate. I, I know what he means because I'd stopped enjoying Edinburgh. No, no, I'd stopped enjoying stand-up because I was doing 10 from my 2012 and 10 from my 2011 at circuit gigs. I wasn't getting anything out of it because I always thought that what I enjoyed was the performance and it isn't. So I thought, well, this is, this is me done. I'm, I'm going to quit stand-up because I'm, I'm not having fun anymore. And then I got given the hour of on S4C to write a Welsh language show. So I've never done gigs in Welsh before. First language, never done gigs in it, really. So now I've got three months to write an hour and a half that's good enough for television. So suddenly, every single conversation I have is, is potentially material. So every single conversation I have with my parents, I'd, I'd, I, was, I was writing stuff down as I was on the phone to my <laughs> mum and dad. Because my, my dad especially is very funny. So okay. I'm trying to get something. And I did 13 previews and the show wasn't really funny till probably the fifth or the sixth one. And then I did one in Swansea for about 50 people. And it went quite well. And I drove back to London. And I actually, I was punching the ceiling of the car because I was so happy. Because A, it's a very emotional, evocative thing to do stand-up in your first language when you haven't done it before. Yes. You course. feel like you're just unlocking a door to everything. Yes. And also, I could see the show taking shape. And I came off stage and I shook hands with the producer and he said, we're going to be fine, we're going to be fine. That was great, we're going to be fine. And I said, how long was it? He said, he did an hour and nine, we're going to be fine. So I drove back, it's about, it's about three and a half hours, and I was beeping the horn. Yes! Because I, I thought it's going to be, it's going to be fine. Okay. And I've just come up with this hour. And then the next one was, um, it was in um, Velinvach, which is a very Welsh-speaking part of Wales, and they've got theatre devoted to Welsh language stuff. So it had sold out. And that's where my a lot of my family are from. So I knew I could push certain buttons. And again, I drove back to my mum and dad's house, <laughs> punching the roof of the car, thinking, it's, it, this is it, this is it. And by that stage, I was thinking, well, if I'm a stand-up, this is what I'm meant to do. You're meant to turn over stuff. 
You, that is what the point of being a stand-up is. It's not to do the same gear for 10 years because it pays your mortgage. It's to, it's to come up with new, better jokes. And I've realised that I haven't fallen out of love with stand-up. I've fallen out of love with doing old Doing material. the same old stuff, yes. So okay. I'm writing another Welsh show. And I've got this iPhone note that I back up because I'm in my 30s, not in my 20s. And it's it's just every idea. So I haven't, I haven't done the first preview, which will probably be in Machanleth, but it's this huge document. And then I will work on that in the run-up to try and work out which is the most performable stuff. And I think the key to that is that my daughter has such a different upbringing to the one I had. That is where the humour will lie. I think. Okay, that to me is the sound of an experienced comic going. Okay, I know what the key to that show because would be. there is a big thing in Welsh language culture about authenticity, which I think we need to get over actually. So I speak Welsh to my daughter, but because she goes to a toddler group in South London, she has a broad Cockney accent. So when she speaks Welsh back to me, she sa- sounds like Dennis Waterman has <laughs> lived in Aberystwyth. <laughs> <laughs> and this is really funny. And it's quite funny in English, actually. I've done it, I've done it in English at New Material Lights, but in Welsh, that is, I can see, I, I'm quite confident that's going to fly. And also, she has quite a very middle-class sort of toddlery upbringing. Like, she eats avocados and mango. I didn't try mango until I was about 25. And she goes to this thing called Fox Tots, where it's a band and they sing songs about the importance of brushing your teeth, and it's in a community centre in Penge. And, and she goes to soft play. Like, soft play didn't exist when I was her age. And I think the contrast of her life with my upbringing and what most people's upbringings were like in Wales is the key to the next show because I will be able to talk about myself and her and it will just allow me to bring in characters that don't usually get heard on Welsh language telly so I think that is that's the key to it and I'm more because also because she's bilingual she mixes she mixed her first sentence was a, a, a mix of English and Welsh oh my god but then it's really funny so her first sentence was um she saw sheep live for the first time on a holiday in Suffolk. And Boyd is the Welsh word for food. So she went, Oi, Baba! At the sheep. What are you doing eating, Boyd? And she was just asking... <laughs> she was just asking the sheep if he was eating food or not, but she said Boyd rather than food. And it's it's just... I think a Welsh audience will go for that. I'm yes. fairly confident they will yes. anyway. I hope so. If not, I've got to go back to the drawing board and I'm running out of time. But that's the new... <laughs> but that's ex- a good position to be. Yeah, but that's the new exciting thing, I think. I'm just going to wrap up with some quickfire questions. This is a new oh, thing. okay. This is a new thing. Um, which comic would it be most narratively satisfying if they killed you? If they killed Robbins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that to me. <laughs> um, which bit of someone else's, and it could be a one-liner or a, 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 an extended bit or a story, which one bit do you most wish that you'd written? Well, I wish the character I'd come up with was Alan Partridge. <laughs> because it's the greatest comic creation of all time, I think. But as one bit, oh, I don't know, there's too many. I love watching comedy. And also, I love watching my friends perform. So if you watch Henry Packer or Robbins or Josh Widdicombe, they're going to be really, really funny. And so I often sit there and they've all got different skills to me. Or Acast. Like I look at Acast and I just think, how are you doing this? Yeah. He comes up a lot on this show. Yeah. <laughs> specifically Kit, that, specifically well. that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, I do lots of charity gigs with Dan Kitson. <laughs> he often won't have done stand-up for three months or six months. Yeah. And then he, I just think, you're <laughs> yeah. different on I'll a I'll never forget scale. seeing him do a preview and arrive at the gig and whilst getting ready to perform, tell a story about a conversation he'd had over the phone two hours previously for 40 minutes 
and then say, and it was brilliant. Yeah. And then he said, oh, we better have an interval, actually, and then we'll do the preview. Yeah. Is he, um, we, I used to do a thing called a committee meeting. We used to do a show at the Muni Arts Centre in Pontypridd every couple of months. So we used to write a show from scratch. And then we'd always get, just in case the show was bad, we used to get a headliner in case, just so people couldn't complain and have money back. And we got Izzy to do it. And she wrote a song about Pontypridd. And it was just the right amount of observations on the town, which were cheeky enough to be funny, but charming enough to get away with. Yeah. And I did think, bearing in mind she's written that today, that is pretty Im- impressive. What most holds you back? Um, I was super, super bashful as a young act. And I hated, hated calling for gigs and asking for gigs. And I was terrified of phoning off the curb for ages. And then I realised it was just a man in an office. And, um, oh my God, I remember uh, trying to get downstairs at the King's Head and my flatmate watching me call, it's Peter, isn't it? Yes, Pete Graham. Yeah, Pete Graham. I remember him watching me call Pete Graham and the phone call went, hi, obviously you've got loads of comments to choose from, so you probably won't bother. And that's fine. So I'm coming from Cardiff, so you may as well get someone more local. There will be someone more local. <laughs> but I, I've been asked to, if, if I can do a gig in London so people can see me in London. But it's absolutely fine if you don't want to be that person because you haven't seen me already. So, and he just put the phone down. And my friend was like, what was that? And it took a very long time for me to feel able to call people up and say, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a comedian, I can do this. Are you happy? Yeah, because I'm a homeowner <laughs> and I would never have got to that stage without two things. Comedy, because I was going nowhere, working in office and B, having a significantly more successful partner. <laughs> I can really recommend that. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't dreaded work since I left a real job. It's all fun. It's all great. There are. I, I'm not very good at corporates. I don't do them, them anymore, really, because I'm bad at them. And I, you know, I don't do certain clubs anymore because I was bad at them. But in the main, comedy is a nice life. And you hang out with your friends. And the, it's also a complete myth that comics are dicks, I think. Yes. I worked with some complete twats in offices. But I, how many twats are there That's on the That's a circuit? good point. No one ever says, comics can be real dicks. Yeah, compared to who? Well, yeah, I, I, worked, I, used to, I used to work in, um, in a gas pipe office in Cardiff. And my line manager was a, a, a balls out racist. And she used to sing racist songs at the desk. And I've I've never I, you know I've shared lifts to gigs with other comics. That's that's never happened. <laughs> That'll do us. Thanks, man. Great. So that was Ellis James. Just an absolute joy to spend some time with Ellis and and to talk to him and try and uh, find out what makes him tick. Lots more stuff with Ellis available at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras by signing up to the mailing list and then waiting for a few moments for that little blue wibbling thing to uh, resolve. You only need to go through all of that sign up nonsense once and then you, it's, you, there's a cookie and it just automatically pings up on your screen whenever you, uh, whenever you revisit that site. Um, so what I mean is the little blue wobbly thing it's hellish, and we all know it's hellish, but once it's dealt with, you don't see it again. So, uh, feel free to go there for the extra content, including other extra material from the Russell Howard show, the Dara O'Brien show, one of the Millican shows, lots of... Uh, Sarah Millican, just casually surnaming Millican there. Um, 
and uh, that's that's all of that. So, as I said, almost certainly sold out for the 23rd of January in Soho, but there were other dates coming up in Soho uh, with guests TBC, so uh, jump on those, because uh, hopefully they will also sell out, and you can look all smug. One very big name on the cusp of confirming for that, so that'll be very exciting to find out. I'll chat to you more on the post-amble, but if you are someone who donated over the Christmas period, and there were one or two very special ones, uh, one in particular who didn't want to be named, thank you, you know who you are, um, but everybody... And seriously, people email me and say, here's a fiver, I'm sorry it's not more I'm a student, or I'm sorry it's not more I've got a baby. Please don't apologise. I'm so grateful that you are moved sufficiently by the show to take action, simply clicking, let alone, you know, it's, it's, it's not about the money. But if you can afford it, it's about the money. <laughs> so thanks, everybody. Comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate if you'd like to support the show with a recurring subscription payment of, I suggest, £2 or a one-off donation of, for example, £20. That's all of that. I'll chat to you later, like in a minute or two if you stay. But for now, that concludes the podcast. Speak to you soon. So, welcome to the Postamble. That's what it's officially called now. Um, someone called Will, a friend of mine called Will, in fact, uh, referred to it as the Postamble. And I thought that's, you know, we all know who I hate the word waffle. And then someone else shortly, I can't track the chronology, but someone else called it the Postamble. So if I've, like, Will definitely thought he was making that name up, but maybe someone else did, or maybe I mentioned it. And then, anyway, whatever it is, uh, I'm crediting him. And there's someone else, possibly a lady called Liz that emailed me. That's what it's called now. So this is this. And look, on the subject of Postambles, thank you for indulging me earlier in this episode with the uh, with me reading out stuff about the stand-up show and people's responses to it as you will know if you listen to the postamble i've recognized that one of my jobs is to convert those guys not you guys you're on side <laughs> the post at the amblers um but the people that listen just to the show then switch off totally you know we're all busy but uh i've got to convert those guys right i've got to convert them to to being fans of the stand-up show and do you know what how Fucking nice was it to release a thing because if you sell a thing online, which I've done a little bit in the past, people you you don't really launch or when when you launch it, certainly the, the level at which I'm at, you sell a thing and people don't all suddenly get back to you at once. Giving a thing away within the space of 24 hours, God, I had so many emails and tweets and, and lovely things from people about the album. Great. And similarly, you guys who listen to the, the, the ambling stuff, um, you just all got in touch with me at once. Loads of you did. And you said things like this. And, and okay, this is, this is specifically about the amble, just to bring you up to speed. If this is your first one, welcome. Um, I'm referring specifically to the end of the Pappy's Christmas special episode, the Pappy's Return Christmas special, where I talked about getting a, in brief, getting an email from my therapist saying, hey man, we haven't spoken to you. <laughs> Those aren't the words he used. He's very professional. <laughs> Some, hey man, I've got this bong racked up. That's, that is not my therapist. <laughs> he said, we haven't spoken since April, so maybe our journey is concluded. And, uh, and I talked about how lovely that was. Here are just a couple of things people said. This is the gamut of reactions. Leighton said, you utter, utter, utter wonderful bastard, Stu. You've just had me blubbing while sat at traffic lights. There were lots of references to having something in people's eye or, you know, tearing up. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, it was, it's, it's been emotional for me. This was unique. This one, Andy, ominously emailed, I want to feel how you're feeling in a few months. Oh, God, no. Oh, Andy, I'm sorry, I've misunderstood. 
understood this. I've just reread it. I thought he was saying, I want to see how you're feeling in a few months. For now, at least this pod exists. Like, as in, yeah, we've all had breakthroughs, mate. Wait for it and, uh, and see what... But actually, I really... He said, I want to feel how you're feeling in a few months. Andy, I hope you're listening because I may have responded too <laughs> abruptly uh, to your communication with me because I thought you were saying, yeah, mate, all right, we'll see how you're doing later. I thought that was worth saying because obviously, you know, a, a, a therapized journey is very much peaks and troughs and yes, I've made it and hey, it's all going to be all right and oh God, I'm back there again. And look, let's not pretend I haven't burst into tears over Christmas. <laughs> but uh, they were much happier tears and um, I don't want to be too flippant about this. My point is, I know I'm not fixed. I'm not, it's not completely over. I'm not as blissfully happy from now on. I know that. But my point stands... If the therapy journey bit is over and the next phase of the self-care is beginning or is transit, you know, is kind of like a, we're wiping like Star Wars, <laughs> a, a, a jolting left to right wipe uh, from one phase to another, that's fine. And I'm far enough down the road to know that. And that's what I'm celebrating. So it's not like I'm like, whoa, I'm cured. It's more like, what a milestone. But anyway, I, I thought I'd include what and what I thought Andy said, because I thought, mm, balance, but actually realise now, let's honour what Andy said. I want to feel how you're feeling. Well, good for you, man. And uh, it might take months, it might take years, and uh, I hope you get there. I hope we all get there. Finally, Dan said, so glad others feel it. Thank you. Comedians don't... Re- this is interesting. He says, comedians don't realise how much their honesty about life helps us normal people. Dan, we're all normal people, mate. Because all we see is people's Facebook highlight reel and no longer share reality of life and honesty of struggles. It's a good point. It's part of the reason I think stand-up is so important, a way of connecting people in a way the falseness of social media won't. Well, I mean, yeah, lots to say about that. I think if you're looking to social media to accurately reflect the world, I think we're all going to be disappointed by that. I try try to regard social media as obviously there are elements where it has to be kind of a business tool for me but also i try to regard it as you know it's entertainment it isn't reality it's certainly not a substitute for friendship you remember we used to say the comedian's comedian podcast is not a substitute for writing jokes well bloody facebook is not a substitute for spending time with people you know maybe it's helpful to you in that way and i'm, I'm sure there are ways loads of ways in which, in which it makes people feel less alone but it's not as good as being with people so that's worth saying obviously worth worth reiterating but you're absolutely right oh i mean i remember that was like a <laughs> ironically wasn't that a buzzfeed article whenever i read something on buzzfeed i like to go i, I read somewhere <laughs> <laughs> never like to credit in the toilet of the internet um I, the toilet's not fair common the graffiti on the toilet of the internet whatever um there was some sort of article somewhere about how facebook is everyone's highlight reel i think that's obviously what dan's referring to you know the reality is you see your own bloopers you see your own mistakes and you see everyone else's presented mediated version of the world that they want to show you and that is only one of the reasons why real relationships in irl are better. But I do think the point he's making, comedians don't realise how much their honesty about life helps people. Yeah, maybe. I certainly have changed the way I think about things having listened to comedians. I've certainly changed the way I think about things having had conversations with friends. But I suppose if you are feeling isolated, then listening to a comedian talk honestly about a thing in an amusing way, in a way that kind of lets the pressure off about that thing, whatever kind of direction that pressure is pushing you in or compressing you, just to hear... It's like if, if you... If you're a kid or any... If you're a... If you're, imagine you're a human for a second <laughs> and you say to someone... Oh, I've been really worried about this. I'm worried about this exam. I'm really worried about this thing we've all got to do. I'm really worried about 
leaving college. I'm really worried about getting a real job. I'm really worried about finding another job after this one, whatever. If you just say, you can think about that on your own and buckle it up and feel terrible about it indefinitely. Or you can just say to someone, I'm really worried about that. And if they go, God, yeah, me too. Jesus, doesn't that knock out 90% of the trauma? Doesn't that just let the... the ah. So if you hear Louis C.K., to pick a, an off-picked example, or, or whoever it is, if you hear a comedian say, God, I've always worried about that. Isn't that good? Isn't that not... I mean, I, I think momentarily of uh, Tom Rigglesworth's excellent material about hemorrhoids. <laughs> to choose a... a phenomenally uh, I was going to say mundane in terms of the, the topic not the bit which is uh, exceptional but uh, <laughs> but you know to hear someone just make fun of something you know we've all got to go over the top we're all going to die you hear a comedian talk about death in a way that makes you go yeah you know absolutely well thank you Dan thanks for making us think about that and I meant <laughs> I wasn't using the royal us there um, thanks for making uh... <laughs> do you know when is the queen a hive mind <laughs> when she uses the royal we when she says we are very concerned about this maybe be, I mean, she's a queen. Hive? Something? Is the queen a hive mind? I mean, there are the components. Let's say, if you hear me doing anything on that in the Edinburgh show that I present later this year in 2017, if the queen slash hive mind makes it, then, then maybe I got desperate around June. Components of a joke rather than a joke itself. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. This is optimistic. I was doing some chores this morning. I God, I think of the current touring show has got stuff about being a dad and have you finished all the jobs? Because I equate dads with doing jobs. Now I am one. God, there's a lot of jobs to do. Um, and I was doing some jobs this morning and the baby's poorly. He's not, he's not serious, but it's, you know, awake all night coughing and wheezing. The experience of seeing your baby ill is so heart-wrenching. My God. I mean, morale was low. We're going on holiday for a week tonight. I'm recording this before it's released. We're going on holiday for a week and... Um, and it's the sort of pre, it's the calm before the crazy six months of touring and prepping in Edinburgh and all the rest of it. So, uh, that was odd. I tried to justify going on holiday then. Did you hear me? What a weasel. I'm obviously worried about it, but it's, it's justifiable, right? Got a family time. Morale was a bit low because of poorly baby. And this morning I was doing some, I had to do some hoovering and I had to cast out the Christmas tree. <laughs> you know, hurl the Christmas tree into the street in such an unceremonious way. And I thought to myself, I felt so much better afterwards about you know, the baby, perspective. He's going to be fine. We've just been feeling guilty because he's ill. Let's, I mean, let's get over that. He's going to be fine. We, it's holiday, valid. Let's go on holiday. It's going to be great. I realise that chores are actually morale tasks. Is that is that a good way of thinking about it? I mean, it sounds like a very fascist way of thinking about it if you assume the role of a dictator. Increase, what is it? The, the, the beatings will continue until morale improves. But it did, honestly, I'm so bad at getting around to doing things, to actually cleaning the oven. Oh, that's needed doing for five years. All of that kind of stuff. And actually, really, what you it's a small amount of elbow grease and you end up with an enormous boost in morale. <laughs> is, is that an idea? Is that, I mean, is there, there's, there's a scale of ideas, isn't there? Like, is that a bit? Is that just a tweet? Is that just a sentence? Was that worth saying <laughs> out loud? Oh, that was half of thought. Half an early morning dream thought. But uh, anyway, I'm going to try and put that into my life more. Don't worry, that sounds like I'm going to go all happy clappy and uh, who knows? Who knows where the journey will take us next? It's the start of a new year. Maybe by the end of this year, the podcast will be 99% life hacks. <laughs> Speak to you soon, guys. Uh, look out for the Ellis James extras stuff. You know where to find it and uh, I'll talk to you next week. Ta-da! Hey! 
it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.